From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, the official podcast of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. Check back often for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. AANP's core mission is to empower all nurse practitioners to advance quality health care through practice, education, advocacy, research, and leadership, what we call our PEARL. And one element of carrying out this mission is the work that is done towards ensuring a fair and equitable system in which NPs have parity in reimbursement, payment, and government funding. Our guest today is truly essential in making this work happen and is one of the top experts in the country when it comes to nurse practitioner reimbursement. AANP Director of Reimbursement and Regulatory Affairs, Frank Harrington, regularly reviews and analyzes regulations at the state and federal level and represents AANP at meetings with insurers and other stakeholders to bring the voice of the nurse practitioner to reimbursement issues that impact us as nurse practitioners. Let's welcome Frank to NP Pulse. Welcome to NP Pulse. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Sophia. Frank, it's great to have you back. You know, you joined us uh, last month to talk a little bit about telehealth and reimbursement, and you provided such great information. I thought it'd be great to have you back because you and your department at AANP do so much as it relates to advocacy and health policy and reimbursement. And uh, so there's so much I want you to share with our listeners. But first, I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Thank you so much. And yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. There's nothing I love better than talking about reimbursement to our members. Um, My name is Frank Harrington. I'm the Director of Reimbursement and Regulatory Affairs for the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Um, I've been at ANP for Gosh, almost uh, four, it'll be four years in April. Um, so been been really pleased to be here. And my focus has been on federal regulatory policy, um, specifically with a focus on reimbursement issues as well. And not only federal regulatory policy reimbursement issues, but also reimbursement that, you know, MPs encounter with private payers and trying to address some of the issues and barriers that our members typically experience. Um, my background, a little bit about me, is uh, I am I am a practicing attorney, uh, not technically an attorney for for AMP. I have to give that caveat. Um, but prior to coming to the association, I worked for a law firm where I represented hospitals on reimbursement issues for for about seven years. So so it's been a focus of mine for for a long time, and you know I've been really glad to to come to AMP where I can talk about you know a whole host of issues given that our members are, are in every setting every geographic area so it's you know it's been a really interesting experience to have to do a deep dive on uh, kind of all of the reimbursement aspects that impact MPs because it is effectively everything under the sun 
Yeah, and look, we're so glad to have you. And it's I've always said it's so important for NPs to understand the business side of practice. You know, we love to see our patients and take care of them. And um, the, the last thing we want to have to deal with is paperwork and coding and things like that. But it's so important, and they really need to understand what goes on uh, after they close that EMR out and, and they select, you know, their E&M codes and things like that, uh, because you need to understand what's going on in the billing office. Um, you know, this year, I know uh, the 2021 fee schedule just came out, and I know there are a lot of changes in that. And I think that's the first thing I'd like for you to, to share with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, this came out a little late this year, uh, given the given the pandemic. Um, so there is a tighter turnaround for clinicians to really make themselves aware of the changes that are going to be taking place, you know, uh, in 2021. Um, you know, so first and foremost, I think we'd start with one of the items that was, you know, pretty specific to NPs and other uh, APRNs and PAs as well, which is that um, Medicare will now cover diagnost- diagnostic testing. Uh performed by other clinicians, but supervised by NPs, other APRNs, and PAs. Um, this was one of those, you know, arcane Medicare rules that had been on the books for a really long time. Um, and, and while Medicare had always reimbursed for diagnostic testing performed by NPs and ordered by NPs, the supervision aspect was missing. So um, CMS waived that during the public health emergency. So it is uh, it was in effect for most of 2020, and they made it permanent in this year's fee schedule. So that'll be a new policy moving forward. So we were really pleased to see that change. It was one that you know we advocated for, our members advocated for. It's you know consistent with the state regulation of of NPs. So it's really nice to see um, CMS catch up with the times and and make that adjustment. So that should hopefully provide additional flexibility for MPs and MP practices and how they manage their patients um, and perform diagnostic testing moving forward. So that was a really really nice change to see made by CMS this year. The next and probably um, biggest change on a reimbursement basis are changes that CMS finally has related to evaluation and management services. So outpatient office E&M codes are the most commonly billed codes um, in the Medicare program, and specifically, they are the most commonly billed codes by a pretty wide margin um, by nurse practitioners on average. So about two years ago, we need to backtrack a little bit. Um, CMS proposed changes to E&M coding in an attempt to reduce burden um, and streamline the process uh, that would have effectively collapsed the code. So instead of having levels one through five, you would have had two levels of codes. And that created a lot of concern among the clinician community as to what impact that would have, you know, particularly on more complicated patients, because um, if, when you got into levels level three and four, level four patients, reimbursement would have come down a little bit. So kind of the clinician community went back to the drawing board. Um, and last year, you know, CMS proposed and ultimately kind of temporarily finalized some, some pretty major changes to E&M coding, which uh, substantially increased the RVUs. So you'd see a, a, a big bump in reimbursement um, and also streamlined the process of the documentation side. So coming into this year, there are some pieces that CMS had already put into place. Um, first and foremost was in 2020, clinicians were then able to review and verify as, as opposed to redocument the work performed by other medical staff related to the ENM services and not have to reperform histories and physicals. So that was a big and pretty, you know, well-received, uh, burden adjustment by, among all clinicians and kind of as a corollary to this, um, we also were able to, to get a policy 
put through by CMS, which authorized MPs to review and verify medical documentation put in by MP students. So that was a really big, um, big change and, and something that, you know, our members, particularly those in teaching settings, had really been asking for. And coming into this year um, and what's going to uh, go into effect in 2021, the biggest shifts are that history and physical will no longer be required as a component of the EM visits unless they are uh, medically necessary and clinically appropriate for that patient. And they will no longer be used to select the code level. Code level will only, beginning in 2021, be based on either time, and CMS has put forward the standard times for each level of services, both new and established patients, um, and or uh, the the medical decision-making component of the ENM service. So the goal of CMS in this was to really try to focus on the portions of the ENM visit that were most important to the patient and the clinician and remove pieces that were not always necessary and and they had received a lot of feedback, had just been kind of standard components for you know, going back to 1995 and hadn't been updated since, well, really since 1997. So they were, they were due for an update. And uh, CMS also added on some additional new G codes for particularly either prolonged visits or medically complex patients. So the end result of all of this is um, that, you know, hopefully ENM visits will be easier to document um, and that and the documentation will, will focus more on what's really important in that patient visit, what has changed since previous visits and, and the medical decision making that clinician is doing. But also this is the biggest probably um, increase in reimbursement for a primarily primary care service in years. So CMS's estimate is that uh, for NPs billing Medicare because so much of MP billing is office ENM services, NPs on average will see a 7% increase in their reimbursement level. So that's that's a substantial increase. And, and as far as I know, the biggest single year increase we've seen um, in the fee schedule for nurse practitioners. That's very impressive. So let's let's break it down into kind of um, layman's term, terms. Um, if I'm having a patient that comes into the office who has uh, diabetes and high blood pressure, how is uh, how is my documentation going to change? Well, for those patients, especially if they're an established patient, you wouldn't have to re-perform that history and physical to document those conditions unless something had really prompted you to do so or something had changed from that last visit. So it's really trying to be geared towards reducing those kind of just redundant box checking reviews um, that clinicians were having to do at every single E&M visit, even if they did not feel like it was clinically appropriate. So that's really what they're aiming for. For those established patients where you know um, their conditions, you can focus on what's changed, what's new with that patient versus having to just redo work you'd already done in previous visits. So yeah, you don't have to re-import all the stuff that you did mm-hmm. already. It's just updating uh, anything new, anything different, and anything pertinent to those diagnoses. Exactly. And you know, again, obviously, um, you know, the the NM coding has you know, substantial, um, you know, kind of guidance and prefatory language that clinicians should make themselves aware of. So these are also the resources we're making sure to link to on our website so that, you know, in 2021, NPs can look at the new code descriptors, the way that these services, um, you know, are are being described now and, and what um, CMS is looking for and other payers are looking for so that they can make sure that their their documentation is changed accordingly. 
And, you know, one thing I'd be kind of remiss not to mention as well is that just to make note of the fact that um, the fee schedule does have to be uh, budget neutral. So where we're seeing a huge, a really big increase in ENM reimbursement, there is the counterpoint that reimbursement for other services may have to drop. And CMS has done that by um, lowering the conversion factor for this year. So while this is a real big positive shift for MPs writ large, we are aware that there are certain specialties that that are at risk of of some payment reduction. So, you know, we've encouraged CMS um, to the extent that they'd be able to to waive some of those requirements, particularly given the pandemic and the financial impact on practices. And we know that Congress and other stakeholders are looking at similar things. So, want to make clear that you know, while this is certainly beneficial to NPs as uh, on a broad scale, our folks in certain specialties may see differences. Okay, and you'll have re- links to those resources on our website mm-hmm. for anybody that wants any more information about that. Absolutely. So what are some other things, um, you know, I, and I guess what, what you just referred to is uh, CMS does recognize that providers are, are getting burned out on, on the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you Absolutely. Know, we want to be able to treat the patients without having to ha- check all those boxes. Yeah, and that's been, um, you know, we've, we've been participating in the, you know, in, in their red tape burden reduction initiative for, you know, for a long time. Um, and it has been a focus of, uh, you know, this administration in, partic- in particular. So we've been able to see a lot of re- burden reduction for NPs, which has, you know, been really beneficial, you know, to our members. And we've heard a lot of positive feedback in that regard. And it's something we hope, you know, will be carried through that, you know, we really start to focus on, you know, what are the what are the aspects of kind of that administrative side that are really important to patient care? And what are the pieces that don't deliver much value and can be removed from the process so that, you know, clinicians aren't facing burnout? And, and you know, you're on the front lines providing care. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we are very well aware how much of a strain COVID has put on an already overworked clinician workforce. Yeah. And now, isn't there some kind of new language about uh, Medicare reimbursing NPs for supervising staff? Yeah, that's the supervision of diagnostic test piece. So now okay, they'll. Okay. So yeah. So if you know MP has their own practice and you know they have you know either you know an RN or a medical assistant or you know any other clinician who is performing that diagnostic test, the MP will now be able to be the supervising clinician in that setting and bill Medicare accordingly. Okay, that's Whereas perfect. personally is a per- personal performance requirement. And then, so I think the next thing that, that we need to talk about is all these different payment models now. You know, people hear about ACOs and things like that, and, and people really aren't sure what to think about all this. You know, most NPs go to, go to their practice and, and just bill and come home, and they don't, they don't understand that there's a lot of stuff going on <laughs> in the background related to quality and, and reimbursement. Um, can you address some of that? Yeah. So we, we, you know, one of the things that we've you know, always been been encouraging, um, you know, our members and regulators and stakeholders is, you know, we are very well aware um, the impact of the reimbursement disparity for NPs first and foremost. You know, and as as probably everyone listening to this knows, under the Medicare fee schedule, NPs get reimbursed at eighty five percent of the fee schedule as opposed to one hundred percent for their physician colleagues. Um, regardless of quality of care, regardless of if, if it's the same service build. And it, that 15% is a substantial um, 
a substantial amount of money when it comes to, you know, particularly to having a practice and being able to pay your staff and pay the bills and and provide the level of care that you want to do your patients and, and have the suite of services available. So, you know, we've been seeing a lot of movement towards you know, value-based reimbursement, both on the part of Medicare um, and Medicaid and private payers as well. So each year um, that this has been tracked, you know, most recently there's a there's a group called the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network. Um, it's kind of a joint uh, private and uh, federal government partnership that's really geared towards tracking the levels of uh, reimbursement that's tied to value-based care and encouraging more value-based care delivery. So we've been seeing year after year a higher percentage of reimbursement being linked to value in some sense than the traditional fee schedule model. Now, that being said, for a lot of value-based programs, that fee schedule still does provide the backbone. So, you know, if we're talking about the largest um, kind of federal government program related to quality of care, the, the quality payment program, you know, that is, you know, clinicians by and large in that program are reimbursed uh, based on uh, the fee schedule and then bonus payments given their quality metrics and other metrics that they need to report. But we're seeing a substantial shift into other forms of payment. So um, trying to move away from the fee schedule. So those capitated upfront payments where clinicians will get a certain monthly payment, you know, per patient per month to try to give them upfront money so that they can, you know, make the practice changes that they need and not feel you know, not have an incentive to to bill for every single service, which is an administrative burden, but also there is some uh, degree of it's not really incentivizing quality of care, it's incentivizing, you know, utilization in a way. And uh, so we've seen CMS really move in that regard um, and, and link more payments to that and then value and try to streamline what these models um, are, are really accounting for in terms of quality and cost. And and recently, some new models have been announced that have also, uh, or they've also been trying to incorporate some waivers and flexibilities for MPs specifically. And so, do people? How does that work? Do people sign up for those? Um, how do people get involved in these different alternative payment models? Sure. So, there's a couple different ways. Um, you know, there are some models that are geared towards. It would kind of depend on on what the model is. So, there are some that are geared towards really individual practices, you know, clinics and smaller groups. Um, and so one that's beginning next year is referred to the, as the, the primary care first model. Um, and it's a model that's really geared towards primary care practices and the way that, you know, practices would enroll and the, the application period is closed. But for all these models, there's an application period. Um, you would provide the information that CMS has asked for in the model. CMS would evaluate whether or not your practice uh, fits those requirements. And they have some considerations of trying to, you know, focus on certain geographic regions and if CMS determines that your model meets those requirements, you'd be accepted into the program, and then you would participate for whatever the length of time that the model runs for. So typically, it'll be you know kind of between three and five years. Um, so for primary care first, that's one that you know they have put a big emphasis on, really trying to again increase primary care. And these are um, models that are focused on uh, you know trying to streamline the quality measures so really reducing hospitalizations and focusing on you know reducing ed visits and focusing on the highest um, impact metrics that they see like care for patients with diabetes care for hypertension the conditions that are really driving a lot of patients to higher cost settings and also are really having a, a long-term impact on on the health care of individuals 
Um, and so for that specific model, you know, they've really encouraged NPs to participate. We had, um, you know, did hosted a webinar with CMS uh, during the application period. And in order to, you know, really entice all clinicians to participate, you know, they've made clear that, you know, those upfront payments that they're making to practices are going to be equal whether or not the clinician is a physician, an NP, another APRN, or a PA. Like they, they're trying to, to recognize that if we want to reimburse based on quality um, and who meets these metrics, then those historical discrepancies based on licensure don't really play a role in a model like this. And that's great. There's a benefit. That's definitely a benefit to NPs. And um, I'm sure based on the quality indicators, there's some kind of reporting that has to be done. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so all every practice participating in, in models such as this will have. You know, reporting requirements to CMS for all of the patients that are enrolled in the model. Um, and so, you know, CMS, to their credit, has, has you know, tried to provide uh, practices with kind of an easy way to report this, technical resources, to make sure that they're getting all the information that they need and that the practices, you know, the goal of these models is really to reduce the burden kind of inherent in fee-for-service billing. So, so CMS has, you know, made it a, a focal point to try to reduce that within these. And, you know, it, it's... Kind of, you know, still remains to be seen how effective that will be, given that a lot of these are are pretty new. They've tried to put out a lot of different stuff recently, but it's certainly a step in the right direction in terms of, you know, what they're valuing. And hopefully, you know, there will be a lot of really positive lessons learned from this and some other models. Um, you know, but I would also just mention, you know, for, for primary care first, uh, one of the things that CMS has also done is for any NP participating in that model, they will be able to certify their patient's need for diabetic shoes. So we've had a lot of discussions with them about, you know, again, if if there's any concerns about, you know, increases in utilization from removing some of these historical barriers, those aren't really present in these care models, which as a byproduct of the way they're they're delivered, don't encourage like clinicians to overutilize in any way. That would actually take away from how they're reimbursed in the model. In, in CMS, when they put together these model tests, they have a lot more flexibility in their ability to waive some of these burdensome and and outdated Medicare policies that have been, you know, focal points of our members for for years now. For years and years. Years and years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been working on diabetic shoes I think since the 1990s. Exactly. So, you know, this that's nice. So let me let me shift gears a bit. You know, I, I want to talk about Incident two. Um, sure. Incident two has been around, and you can provide the history of it. But a lot of people actually don't don't know what incident two is, and people that are practicing out there every day. And so, I'd like for you to you know talk to us about the very basics um, about what incident two is, and and where we at, where we're at, and, and where we're going with it. Sure. So um, to to backtrack a little bit, the. The reason Incident 2 as a policy existed was when the Medicare program was established, the only clinician type that could bill Medicare directly were physicians. Um, and, you know, I mean, Medicare, the Medicare program it began the same year as the NP profession. So, you know, there, there's a reason why physicians were the focal point. And but, at, you know, at the time, the government recognized that there were other staff members who were providing care to patients. And if only physicians could bill there was no way to really capture the other care that was being delivered. So incident two came about, which is effectively, you know, as long as the the clinician, because now 
NPs can also be the, the billing clinician in an incident two scenario, as long as that clinician has had an initial visit with the patient and is overseeing and is involved with the patient care, they are able to bill for services rendered by other providers in their practice. So this is only specific to, out, to outpatient services. This doesn't apply in hospitals. Um, and so the end effect really ends up being, and, and that was the goal, right? For if, if a clinician could not bill Medicare, their work should be captured in some way. But now that NPs and you know, clinical nurse specialists and, and certified nurse midwives and PAs can all bill Medicare directly, the, the purpose is effectively removed for, for those practitioners because you know, they should be billing for the services that they render. And, and not doing that really obscures um, you know, the care that's being delivered, who's providing that care, and you know, hinders our ability to evaluate the data and evaluate you know, who's providing services to Medicare patients. But what we know is that because physicians are, are reimbursed at 15% higher for, on the fee schedule, a lot of practices will still utilize incident to billing where a physician will be billing for services that are rendered by a nurse practitioner. And, you know, that is allowed by Medicare as long as the, the specific incident to requirements are met, which is that physician would have to have that initial visit and then have a role in the ongoing care of the patient and they'd have to still be available in the office setting. Um, there has been just a lot of concern about that for a long time. You know, we recently saw a report uh, now going back to 2018 where um, where MedPAC evaluated, you know, incident to billing in the Medicare program. And they, you know, they found that, you know, based on their analysis, roughly 40% of the services that MPs provide to Medicare patients are billed out under a physician. And so that's a huge amount of services that aren't being attributed to nurse practitioners. And we already know from the Medicare data that you know NPs are the fastest growing Medicare provider group. NPs provide billable services to at least a third of Medicare patients, and that given incident too, those numbers are substantially lower um, than they would be if we fully understood how many services are being provided by NPs. So, you know, incident two billing that mechanism really has an impact on kind of in a way, undervaluing what MPs are doing because they're not accounted for in, in billing data nearly as much as they should. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we just talked about value-based reimbursement. You know, a lot of value-based reimbursement, patients are being attributed to clinicians based on billing data. And so if an MP doesn't have that billing data, it makes it that much harder to get involved in these value-based programs. Exactly. So to break it down, incident two, if if I'm uh, seeing a patient in, in my office and um, I'm seeing them for diabetes, mm -hmm. if the physician in my office has seen the patient for diabetes before, mm -hmm. we can bill at 100% or get reimbursed 100% of that, that rate because the physician saw the patient first. Yep. However, if I'm seeing a patient in the office for hypertension, has never seen the physician, uh, the office really shouldn't be billing incident two to get that uh, fifteen percent higher reimbursement rate because the physician never saw the patient. Exactly, and that that would not be consistent with Medicare's policy, you know. And I would note as well, you know, what, if you talk about the trends we've been seeing, um, we have to be clear that is a Medicare policy, uh, and historically, you know, we've seen a lot of payers who who for for ease just adopt Medicare policies. We've seen a lot of private payers starting to move away from incident two and, and flat out saying, if if you are a clinician who is contracted with us, you will bill under your own MPI. 
and their their mo- private payers are moving away from the incident to billing mechanism. And we've seen a, a shift in Medicaid programs as well. Um, a lot of Medicaid programs have said the same thing, where if you are enrolled as a Medicaid provider, you are billing directly. As a corollary, um, Medicaid has been been better for MPs in terms of payment parity. Uh, you know, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but the last time we ran the numbers, you know, it was close to half of Medicaid programs were reimbursing MPs at parity. And so, you know, we think that's an important component of as we shift away from incident to billing because it really is an outdated mechanism to make sure that, you know, there there is not, you know, then an, an undervaluing of MP care in a different sense, which is underpaying them for what they're doing. Yeah. And and so for the, the NP that's out there practicing um, every day in their office, I think it's important for them to know um, the billing office. Mm-hmm. When the billing happens, um, it's important for them to know that they're being billed, uh, the billing is done under their NPI number, exactly. and that they're not billing under the physician's name for the services that the NP provided. Exactly. Um, and and there's, st- there's still that utility of incident, too, when... There is a clinician on your staff who who is not allowed to bill Medicare directly. You know that's historically what Incident Two was for, so that billing clinician could be reimbursed for that care. But if you are able to bill Medicare directly, it's been our position that that's how that's how the service should be rendered. Absolutely. So, uh, Frank, would that be considered fraud if they're billing under the physician's name for the work that the NP did? If they're not meeting those Medicare requirements, if that physician hasn't had that visit, if technically if the physician isn't continuously involved in the patient's care, and if they're not in the office in in, in the immediate kind of availability, um, then yeah, then then Medicare would consider that fraud. So I think it's really important that people are aware of those guardrails because you know, we've heard from many people who have questions about this, and when they give examples of what's going on in their practice, it, it very well may not, may not be consistent with those guidelines. And so so what's the fallout on the, the provider, on the nurse practitioner, if those things happen? Well, you know, if, if your practice gets audited and they determine that, you know, Medicare, that your practice is billing Medicare indirectly, one, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, Medicare is going to take back those funds. You know, and two, you could be subject to other types of civil penalties for potentially defrauding the Medicare program, depending on, you know, the severity of the situation. I, you know, I think more often than not, it's probably just an unfamiliarity with the specific regulations as it goes to incident two. You know, I don't think most people are trying to to game the system, but but you know, you don't want to put your one your your ability to be credential with Medicare on the line, potentially your license, and potentially open your practice to civil penalties. So there's certainly things you want to avoid. Exactly. And so, uh, Frank, I want you to talk about what AANP has been so involved in this, and you've, you've touched on a lot of the, the different things that you're doing, but really, what has our role been in, in working on reimbursement and advocacy um, over the years? Sure. So, you know, one, one thing that um, kind of came into my stead when I, when I came to AANP is referred to as the Multi-State Reimbursement Alliance. And uh, that has been kind of a program where MPs can report issues that they've had with private insurers, so that A and P can track those. You know, really understand what's going on on the ground, and then as we see these trends of certain insurers taking certain actions against nurse practitioners, whether it be you know denying them network status or you know too low reimbursement rates or denying services, you know we can then have those discussions as an association with those respective health plans. Um, so that's you know been a really important component because we do you know we do work with a lot of these insurers on a national level, so it's important that we understand what's going on um, when we have those discussions and 
And this is still a tool that's open today. We have um, a multi-state reimbursement page on our website. There's also an email address, msraamp.org, where MPs can report these issues. Um, and it's really important for us to get that information. And I would say for anyone who's interested and has these issues, uh, the more specific and the more um, the more documentation that can be provided, the better for us. Because it's it is much easier to have those conversations when we have hard data and documentation uh, versus kind of just generic statements that somebody may have heard from from one of their insurance carriers. Um, on on top of that, you know, we've been really involved at the national level on all types of reimbursement issues. So you know, we're in constant conversations with. CMS and HHS and, and other stakeholders um, about, you know, one, like EM services. And, you know, we're always commenting on the fee schedule and having these conversations to make sure that the MP voice is heard um, and is at the table when these re reimbursement discussions are taking place. Now, one other thing I would plug as well is um, we have also been participating in surveys uh, for the, what is referred to as the American Medical Association's. Uh, RUC committee, which is, you know, it is a, a committee that is run by the AMA um, that determines the valuations of CPT codes. And the way that those valuations are tabulated is by surveying uh, the clinicians who are performing those services. So it's really, again, important that care provided by NPs is considered in these codes. Um, so you may see from us, it, you know, certain targeted RUC surveys in the coming months. Uh, that really have the goal of making sure that nurse practitioners are completing those surveys, uh, providing guidance on how much time and the inputs to all of the care that they're providing so that when new code valuations come out, that NPs are tabulated in that data. That's really, really important because otherwise, you know, those code valuations are going to come out without consideration for, uh, for the care provided by nurse practitioners. And so, Frank, how would you uh, communicate those RUC surveys to to NPs? How is that being done? Sure. So we've done it in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, going back to the outpatient E&M services, when that was being considered, we did a broad member outreach because we know that the vast majority of our members are providing E&M services. And so pretty much everyone would be able to have some input. So so you would see Blast from Us and eBulletin and Smart Brief and the Government Affairs Update and you know, trying to to do outreach to as many of our members as possible. For more recent surveys that are kind of specific services to NPs in certain practice areas, you know, we've been really utilizing AMPs, uh, well now AMPs communities, um, to try to to target those more to the MPs that you know we believe would, are most likely to be performing those services. You know, and and we really want to try to get as much feedback as as possible. So. You know, we we always encourage folks if if these are things that you're interested in and you would like to be considered in future surveys, you know, always feel free to reach out to us so that we can you know really start to put together a good uh, targeted list of of MPs who are interested in participating. So when we send out a survey that is particular to your practice, you you'll be notified so that you can weigh in. That's great. And so can you give a, give me some examples about the the surveys that have been targeted that you've done? Sure. So, you know, we recently um, sent out a survey on uh, radial artery harvesting. Uh, so, you know, we really targeted MPs in acute settings who may be performing that procedure. Um, there were some surveys on some new remote patient therapy codes. So for that, we utilized our uh, telehealth and health informatics community. And then uh, new surveys on chronic care management and principal care management codes, where we did some outreach to our entrepreneur community. 
So the, the more feedback we get from members on who would like to participate, the better we can target these surveys. And that's what's so great about having our NP communities as mm -hmm. part of our AANP membership, because NPs can join a specific community of interest, whether it's GI or uh, our pulmonary or sleep, um, et cetera. And when they're in those communities, you guys can reach out directly to the NPs that are providing those those specialty services. And so I think we've got about 23 communities right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I know that's a great resource for you as you're looking for NPs who specialize in specific areas to get the information from them and then to them, too, as you get information specifically related to them, you share them with those communities, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's it's an easy way for us to... Uh, you know, we have see so many posts for, you know, nominations to different federal committees as well. And a lot of times those will have a specific clinical focus. So it's, it's really easy way for us to know, okay, who is in these different areas that if we want to make sure the MP voice is heard, you know, those communities are a great way for us to do outreach because those, th those members have already identified themselves as having that particular area of interest. And then I, I would say as you know, just as a staff member, for my information, I oftentimes will go on those message boards just to see what, you know, those communities are saying, because they'll provide really good clinical resources and also have a lot of information as to, you know, what are the issues that MPs are facing on the ground that are, are very, very valuable to staff to understand how we can best advocate. Absolutely. I know you, you staff get the information from those communities and then you try to target resources for our mm -hmm. members. So we have everything so Frank, we have just a few more minutes left. What are some um, some words of wisdom that you can you can share with our members as far as reimbursement and all the work that you all are doing? Sure, and I want to plug one more thing before we uh, kind of turn to the end um, <laughs> because it is another important thing for MPs to know. But uh, for anyone who may not be familiar, um, HHS has a program that's referred to as the Open Payments Program, and uh, that program has been in effect for a number of years now. Um, and what it has historically been is that uh, you know, certain entities such as medical device companies or pharmaceutical companies have to report to HHS about um, what payments or in-kind uh, services they have given to physicians in the course of a calendar year, physicians in teaching hospitals. Um, that effective in 2021 will also apply to nurse practitioners. So it's really important for MPs to understand this program and know that these changes are coming. And the way that this typically works is there's no reporting that needs to be done on behalf of the individual clinician. It is the company to, that has made the payment that would need to report this to HHS. And that all goes on a searchable public database that and anybody can turn to today to, to, to look at. Um, and so beginning January 1st, 2021, those companies will need to start maintaining and reporting that information starting in 2022 on NPs, other APRNs, and PAs. And so there are a couple steps I really want to make sure that our members know to take uh, to prepare themselves. Um, one, and again, we're plugging this through all our, our uh, channels, our CMS did a really nice job of putting together specific resources for the clinicians who are new to the program. Um, so we put that in GAU, that'll go up on our website so that you can familiarize yourselves um, with the specifics of that program. Second thing is, uh, if you have not been keeping track of that information, please start doing so. You want to make sure that you have a good record of all everything that you've received over the course of, of well, now every ensuing year, it's reported annually, um, so that 
when the third step happens, which is you can enroll in the open payments program. And if you do, uh, HHS will allow you to see what is reported about you before it is made public. So if you see any discrepancies in your um, in, in what you've maintained, you can report those to the agency and get those resolved before they're put on the public website. So please be on the lookout for these resources. We're going to continue to send them out um, if folks have questions. Uh, but you want to make sure that people know that change is coming because it's it is going to be a really important change moving forward. So give me let's give me an example of something that an NP may receive. Um, is is it the lunches that people get? Could be the or? lunches, yeah. Okay. Or if it could be the lunches, if you know a company invites you to be a paid speaker at an event, um, those those will all be reported. If you consult for any of these companies, those fees will be reported uh, to HHS and made public. So there's nothing wrong again, nothing wrong with doing those. It is, but it is going to be public information. So you want to make sure that um, you are keeping track of all of that, so that you. Something does not go become public that's not true. Okay, that's very good to know. And we'll mm-hmm. link all those resources to this to this podcast. Absolutely. Well, Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, you've provided a lot of information, <laughs> and I know we've got a lot of resources that we're going to link to this for for people who are listening to do more research. Um, I appreciate you and all the work that you do, and will continue to do uh, on behalf of NPs all over the country. Uh, we uh, really appreciate having having me on the podcast. I love the conversation. I'm I'm happy to come back anytime to discuss you know reimbursement issues because it is a constantly changing field. Well, since you love to do it, I think I might have to <laughs> invite you back. So thanks so much. Thank you, Sophia. Have a great day. What a great discussion! I hope you enjoyed hearing from Frank as much as I did. Be sure to check this episode's description for links to where you can report reimbursement issues to AANP and access the many resources available to help with reimbursement and advocacy questions. The annual AANP Health Policy Conference is going 100% online this year. I'm so excited. Join us to learn about the legislative issues impacting you and your patients and gain the skills you need to be an advocate for the NP role. Register now and access all of the sessions for two full weeks beginning on February 25th. I'm so excited. I hope you'll join me. Lastly, if you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. There's never been more of a critical time to join together for the health of our patients. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. Check back often for new episodes and as always, Be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.